everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm interviewing Liv Bliss, the translator of Dmitry Chen's The Pet Hawk of the House of Abbas, book one in the Silk Road trilogy, which has been wildly popular in Russia. Liv is the first translator I've interviewed, so it will be interesting to see to what extent that casts a different light on the book. The Pet Hawk of the House of Abbas opens in Samarkand, in 749, with the arrival of Nanidat, a Sogdian merchant, who has just returned home after a long journey to China. The novel is told from his point of view. 1. What do you hear? It all began with that rascal of a boy, just an ordinary little scamp from the streets of Samarkand, and the first resident of that city I came upon as I rode into the cold black shadow of two gate towers that soared up into the pale blue sky. The hawk! The imp with the sun-bleached hair howled to his undergrown accomplices. The hawk is here! I recall looking around. A hawk? Where? And seeing nothing feathered in the vicinity, continued on into the peacefully gaping maw of the gigantic iron-clad gates. Meanwhile, though, the boy had run on ahead, deep inside the citadel, and was wailing there at the top of his lungs. The hawk has returned! The sun of hope has warmed us this spring! He is here, and the times of turmoil will soon be ended. At which point he poked a finger in my direction, for no reason I could see, then shook a threatening fist at the top of the wall, toward the dull metallic gleam of the city sentry's helmets, and vanished into an alley. The city must surely have found itself new legends and new heroes, I told my weary companions. We're no heroes, though. All we want is rest. Had I only known what awaited me at my home in place of rest. But that all happened later. For now, I was just going leisurely along, my heart brimming with a sweet sorrow. Ruined art thou, my Samarkand. Thy beauties are destroyed, said the poet. Thirty-seven years of war, squadron after squadron, galloping down these very streets in clouds of dust. Temples looted, gods consumed by fire, countless caravans of booty departing westward to Merv, accompanied by columns of slaves. And again, wars without end, first others against us, then brother against brother, and stranger against stranger, and piles of fresh corpses heaped on hills, both near and far. And now, please join me in welcoming Liv Bliss. Hi, Liv. Well, hello. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you for agreeing to talk to me today. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. I think I should mention right off the bat that Liv and I have worked together for more than 12 years, although this is the first time uh, I've ever spoken to her in person. Uh, We communicate entirely through email. She's my favorite translator of all the ones I work with, and I'm delighted to have a chance to chat with her about Dimitri Chen and his books. So, Liv, let's start with you and your background. Uh, I know that you worked for Progress Publishing House, the main English-language publisher in Moscow, but you must have had some previous exposure to Russian in order to get that job. So where did you first study the language, and how did you uh, end up in Moscow? I learned Russian as an undergraduate. There were some programs in England at that time that allowed you to, to, to start Russian from scratch at the university level. So I was very lucky to get into one of those programs. And I got myself a bachelor's, and I didn't know what to do, so I got myself a master's, and then I still didn't know what to do. Um, my husband was working in Moscow at the Anglo-American School. I tagged along, and uh, after the two years, he was ready to leave. 
But I thought I'd been living in a diplomatic bubble all that time, that I hadn't really been in touch with what was really going on in, in, in Moscow. So I wanted to stay. But in the Soviets, you had to have a job. The, the job, the, the apartment went with the job, literally. So I sailed into a pub, into Progress Publishers and said, I, I don't even remember how I got to the right office or anything, but anyway, I sailed in. And I said, hello, I'm a translator. And they said, oh, really? And so they tested me. And they said, they must have been desperate. I, okay, when can you start? So that's, that's how I got the job. And I worked in Moscow in that job for another year and a half after that. So that's how it all began. And what were you translating for progress? They started me out on magazine articles, very gently. And then after a while, they, they gave me... Um, novels and socio-political commentary. I did a biography of Lenin that was very inspiring. Oh, I'm and, sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, I did a book on Stanislavski. I did another book on Bulgakov. And uh, it, it, it varied, but it was all in the, um, in the humanities side of things. There were other publishing houses in Moscow that handled the hard sciences. And I've forgotten their names, of course. But So that, that was the kind of thing I did. When I first started, they gave me a mentor who, for the first six weeks, looked at every single word I translated. And he was marvelous. I use things that he taught me to this very day. He was the best mentor in the history of mentorship. He was amazing. So they really took care of me. That's great. How long did you live in Moscow? Total of three and a half years including the two years um, where I was in the diplomatic bubble, and then a year and a half of progress. And did you feel that you really had gotten out of the bubble? Is that why you lost? Oh, the second time around, absolutely. I was in a flat with bedbugs, and I was paid in rubles, and they wouldn't let me into the more respectable hotels because they told me they had their own prostitutes there. Thank you very much. So, um, yes, I was, I was in line for apples like everybody else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It was great. That's great. So what made you decide to leave? Uh, I met a guy, um, a businessman who was in Moscow temporarily, and um, came to America. We got married. That's great. Uh, so you and I have worked mostly on nonfiction things, literature and history, but yes. uh, have you been translating fiction all along? There was a big gap after progress, I, I couldn't, I couldn't get arrested in this country for many years. Well, I probably could have if I'd really tried, but I certainly couldn't get, get any decent translation jobs. The um, the novels came along much, much later. So when I first came to this country, I was just I was doing everything and anything: nuclear submarines, no problem; civil engineering, no problem. It was pre-internet, so it was okay if you didn't have the expertise. They were just thrilled that you could get it into another language. Things have changed a lot since then, thank goodness, and the standards have risen greatly. And then um, later I began to realize where some of my strengths lay, so I began to specialize more in the humanities because that's my education, that's my background, that's my preference. But I haven't done a lot of novels um, the one that we're going to talk about later, that was the big one. 
and I hope it's the beginning of something even bigger later on, but we'll talk about that later. So how did you come to the attention of uh, Paul Richardson at Russian Life? It was that marvelous thing, word of mouth. In the translation business, there is no publicity like word of mouth. They were doing, Russian Life was doing a pro bono project for to, to benefit the Russian hospice system. And it was called Life Stories. It was a book of short stories that had been already published in Russia and made a bunch of money there for the hospice system. Um, the people who donated their works are all pretty prominent, in fact, some of them very prominent um, Russian authors had donated these stories. And I don't know how Paul Richardson actually got involved in this, but um, he was casting around looking for enough translators to take on a story or two for the Life Stories book. And a cherished colleague of mine who was already working for the Russian Life Empire um, mentioned my name. And that's how it started. After that, I got a few um, paid jobs for different offshoots of the Russian Life magazine. And uh, then I got that really bizarre email that said, hey, do you want to do a trilogy? Hey, yes. There's actually more in common between fiction and academic texts than one might imagine. They, how can I put it? The difference is that unlike technical translation, legal translation, corporate communications, when you go to fiction, academic translation, or even journalistic commentary, the author is prominent. His personality, his voice is conspicuous. And one has to respect that and to a certain degree, I believe, try to reflect it much in the way that one does in, in fiction. So to me, fiction translation is academic translation on steroids, but with a better story. Mm. This is a wonderful story. So let's talk a little bit about Dmitry Chen uh, and the project itself. Um, you mentioned on the Russian Life blog that you had to, that you did interact with both Paul Richardson and Dmitry Chen as you were doing the translation. And it's frankly hard to imagine how you could work with a book like this without interacting with the author. Can you tell us something about him? I can, but first let me tell you, this is the first time I've had this level of interaction with either the publisher or the author um, in working on a fiction text. In some cases, my authors are dead, and then it's really difficult. But the one I did before this, um, the author is the one who actually gave me the word, but he did not want to talk about it. He just said, I'm paying you to do it, do it. So I did. In this case, it was very refreshing to get feedback and correction and guidance. Dmitry Chen does not take fools gladly, and he didn't let me get away with anything, and that was great. And I know very little about him. What I do know is that um, he was born in 1955. At the tender age of 24, he began to work for Pravda, the, um, the Communist Party mouthpiece, that's right, back in the day in the Soviet Union. His education, university education, his training was as a sinologist, so he was adept in all things Chinese. And he worked with Pravda until 1991, until the 
what I like to call the second revolution, uh, when the Soviet Union went bye-bye. And he, for the last, uh, I think, three years of his time with Pravda, he'd become the regional correspondent for Southeast Asia, which was exactly perfect match for him. Um, he uh, still is extensively published in online and print publications, and he travels a lot. That's, and he has two daughters, and he likes music. That's basically all I know about him. Do you know how he came to write this series? I think he mentioned somewhere that he's from Central Asia originally. His people apparently are from Tashkent, yes. Um, he talks in one interview. I think the, I'm pretty sure the interview is linked on the Russian Life site, or rather page, for the book. There's a wealth of information there, stuff I didn't know. I wish I had known when I was translating the book, but... Um, he uh, he said that he was in a museum in Xi'an, which is the the new name for Chang'an, which is which features prominently in in the novel. He was in this museum and he saw this little terracotta figurine of a man on a very plump, happy-looking camel, and the man was a snappy dresser and he had this little sticky-out beard and he had his head held high and. Enormous amount of character in this little figurine. And the, um, the caption said, Sogdian Merchant. I asked, and, and as Dmitry Chen himself said, that is really helpful. But it got him thinking, who, who are these people? What did they do? What were they like? And he began to look into the Sogdians, and that's where this story came from. Um, yes, I think, I mean, even I found it a little, little confusing to follow some of the politics as we get into the middle of the book, which we're not going to talk about here. But I think it would be useful for people to get a sense of who the Sogdians are. Now, I, I assume that Dimitri did a fair amount of research. Did you also have to research as, as part of your translation? The thing is, just as a matter of self-preservation, one can't become an absolute expert in everything that one translates. So what I do is I dive into a, a novel translation headfirst, and I research as I go along if something doesn't make sense or if something sparks my curiosity or if I wonder if there are, there are levels to this uh, piece of information that has appeared in the novel, then I go ahead and research it. So I did not study these people. I did not study the history. I learned it as I went along in a way kind of reflecting the reader's own experience, uh, unless the reader is already experienced in this, which at least one of my reviewers is, and took me to task for some terrible historical boo-boos and problems, which, you know, I didn't write this thing. I just <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And it's not my... And I had... There were some times when I found certain small, minor errors of fact in the text, which I would then report back to the author. And sometimes authors are resentful about that, and sometimes they're appreciative. And he was sort of resentfully appreciative of my pointing those things out. So I did not want to get too deep into the facts, because this, after all, is on one of the websites that sell his works, this text is called Alternative History which I don't think it really, really is, 
but it's definitely history from a very specific viewpoint, which isn't necessarily that of the historians. Well, even if you are a historian writing historical fiction, you do have to, I mean, one of the hard things about being a historian writing historical fiction is getting away from that need to document everything and make everything fit, you know. It's, um, you do have to tell a story first and foremost, and, and sometimes, I mean, sometimes you make mistakes and people will point them out later. Of course, <laughs> 2020 hindsight. Okay, guys, you write it next time. I mean, I'm more appreciative than resentful, but even so, it's like, dang, I could have avoided that entire plot stream. I just know. Dimitri had another another perspective on his writing, too. Sometimes I would point out to him that a given exchange actually didn't really make sense, or it was completely um, contradictory to what had been said five pages earlier translators read texts really closely and I thought well maybe he hadn't noticed this he told me that indeed he had noticed this and wanted to know did my conversation always make complete sense and did I never contradict myself and I said well you know no he said well these are real people this is the way they talk these are the mistakes they make live with it That is a good point. I mean, people do do that all the time. And in fact, I've, I've even had people point out to me that, you know, character A says this and character B says that. Well, in real life, people do that all the time. You know, everybody has his or her own point of view. And that's part of the experience of the story is these inconsistencies. It is. And that was hard for me to live with because I'm kind of picky. And if it's A, I like it to be A. And if it's black, I like it to be black or white, to be white. I like things nailed down. Mm-hmm. And I really had to take a deep breath and just let it be. Not so much let it go, but rather let it be. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, my author wouldn't have accepted anything else. And secondly, that's what the book wanted to do. So I had to let it do it. Right. <laughs> Well, it's good. I'm sure you'll get that hair back sometime. <laughs> she tore out in the handful. <laughs> oh, it was an absolute pleasure and an education, and it was a tremendously great experience, and I hope I get to repeat it again sometime. Yeah, I hope that you don't, we're going to see books two and three. I mean, book one is lovely. The translation really reads so well. I, I enjoyed it very much. It wrote itself in a way. I provided the words, but it put itself... It, this is going to sound awfully airy-fairy, and I'm not like this, but it did very quickly tell me how it wanted to sound. I mean, you're rendering it from Russian into English, and you're talking about a, a time and a place of which I, I know absolutely nothing, and yet it developed its own voice. I've heard novelists say sometimes that a character will just take off and do what they want, that wasn't part of the plan. Mm-hmm. They do I, all the time. I kind of poo-pooed that. I thought, well, that's silly. You're the boss. And I learned this time around for the first time ever in many, many years of translation that the book actually had its own way. Yeah, they do. Um, yeah. So let's talk about the, the plot a little bit. And let's start with the setting, because the setting is one that's going to be, I, I would imagine it's very unfamiliar even to Russians, but it's much, much more unfamiliar to people uh, on this side of the Atlantic. So 
It starts out in 749 in uh, Samarkand. Right. And uh, the Sogdians, whom you mentioned earlier, are, as at, at this point, they're being uh, Islamized. The Arabs have taken over this part of Central Asia. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but uh, your main character, oh, well, Dimitri's main character, who is Nanidat, and I, is it Maniach or Maniach in Russian? I have no idea. Do you know, it occurred to me after the book was already published that I had no idea how these people's names were pr- pronounced. I-, I knew how I was doing it, but goodness knows if that's correct. And these names are Sogdian, so who knows? 20 words of Sogdian still exist, and we don't know how they were pronounced, so I felt fairly safe in making it up as I went along. So you call him whatever you want. <laughs> so what do you call it? Do you say Maniach or Maniach? I call him Maniach. Maniach, okay. Yeah, with a gentle K-H at the end, but I have no idea. I mean, this has come from Sogdian into Russian script and then from Russian script into some kind of an English version. Oh, Maniach, he does have an, a, a real live ancestor who was also a silk trader. Um, I found him, I don't know, I was just idly Googling around one night and I actually found this. It's, that is an actual Sogdian family name, for real. But that doesn't help us pronounce it correctly. Okay. <laughs> well, I, have, I was pronouncing Maniach uh, too because, you know, that, that transliteration from Russian is kind of mm. embedded in my brain at this That's point. Uh, but I did notice that at one point, somewhere late in the book, when I was looking through it yesterday, he said Mani and he gets caught up. So then I was wondering. But in any case, it doesn't matter. Let's just call him Nanidat and go from there. Fair enough. Um, so he is like Nani Dot means gift of the goddess Nani. Yes, yeah. yeah. Well, if, if the author told me, <laughs> yeah. So that's that's what his name means, gift of the goddess. Which is great, and he's a Zoroastrian, uh, although he has sort of Buddhist links, yeah, Buddhist inclinations. He's um, for his time. He's quite a, a free thinker. He was obviously raised as a, as a Zoroastrian, and and the the, the the festivals and the rituals of that religion are very deeply embedded in him because there are some buttons that you just can't unpush. But yes, he does. He does appreciate the um, the the, some of the tenets of the Buddhist faith, and basically he says, "You pray where you are to whoever you want to pray to. It's all one." So tell us who Nanidat is in your mind as the translator. Who was the person that you? whose words you were funneling onto the page. He's, he's the kind of guy I would really like to invite for dinner. He's a great guy. He's interesting. He's funny. He's self-deprecating. He's got this wonderful wry sense of humor, which he directs to himself as much as to anybody else. I, I love that in a guy. I really do. Uh, he's brave. He's endlessly inventive. Gets into the most horrible situations. Um never gives up, has great physical courage, but he doesn't like to fight. He had a really bad experience at one point. Not, It wasn't his own battle that was a bad experience, but a bad thing happened to him while he was out fighting for somebody else. And uh, he's, in as much as anybody could be in those days, I guess, a little bit of a pacifist, which is strange because he ends up as a military commander. Again, you get you get promoted above your level of competence, maybe, but he, he um, ends up as 
maybe he already had this in him, but he, he is a, a strategist who truly cares for his men. He, he, he's a great military leader, in fact. So he's many... Th- oh, and he's a romantic. Um, fiercely loyal to his family. And... Um, very sensuous person, loves his food, loves his women, likes his wine, his horses. I like him a lot. He's a silk trader, and he has made the journey along the Silk Road to Chang'an uh, eight times, he mentions. Eight times, I believe, yes. <laughs> Which is an extraordinary thing, because it takes three months to get there, and then you have to, you know, you hang around for a year or so, I think, to do business, and then you have three months back. I mean, it's yeah. two years since he's been in Samarkand. He's um, really quite young, too. He, he isn't quite 40 when the book begins. Mm-hmm which is, of course, not as young then as it is now, but still, he considers himself young and, and vital and uh, not at all decrepit. So he's done a lot in his 39 years. Yeah, he has, because, I mean, if you think about it, even if he went there and turned around, you know, did his yeah. business and turned around and came back to Samarkand, unloaded everything, and then went back to Chang'an, he must have started when he was 22 or 23 just to get in eight trips. Must have. Well, his father was in the business also, so um, I guess it was just always expected that he would take over that side of the family business when the time came, and I guess his father died when he was relatively young, and there he was. It wasn't really a choice. Right, yeah, he's the eldest son, so he has inherited, he's now the head of the house of Maniach. Or, right, or and as the eldest son, you'd expect him to stay home and take care of the store, but he, he wants to be swashbuckling around the Silk Road, um, and because he's the oldest, he gets that choice, that's what he gets to do. He also, I get the, I mean, he says, in a, I assume what is a humorous way, that he can retire and become a, a caravan leader, <laughs> a caravan bashi. <laughs> but... He also really likes China. I mean, you get the impression that he just loves being in Han China. He does. Um, the thing about being the caravan leader, he, he just gets awfully tired of the politics and the intrigue and the backstabbing, and of which there's an awful lot in areas of which he is actually unaware for most of the book. Um, he just wants a simple life. He just wants to do his job, and he just wants to travel and meet people and... That's one. The closest he can get to that is by being in charge of the actual trading um, op- operations of the family, and that's why he wants to do that. So, um, so he shows up in Samarkand after his two years' absence, and uh, the first thing that happens is he runs into this young boy who greets him as the Hawk, and he's trying to figure out what that's all about. And it yeah. turns. <laughs> Do you want to tell us what that's about, or shall we move right on to the uh, the next big event? I'm not going to tell about that, no. Okay. You know, there was one re- reviewer said, well, I don't know why it's called the pet hawk, because there's no pet hawk in this thing at all. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> like the, f- <laughs> the first <laughs> sentence, I know. <laughs> Exactly. That's not being so literal-minded, for Pete's sake. Yeah, maybe he was looking for a hawk on somebody's arm. I don't know. So anyway, well, as his brother Aspenak mentions, this is a, a legend that that Aspenak, in fact, has has been disseminating in order 
to make the house look better, give the sense of a hero, or it's it's not really quite clear, I think, ever what the hawk legend is supposed to do. He says that the people have been beaten up by war after war. People need a hero. They need hope. They need to get some of their national self-respect back, and that's his attempt to do that. And he's using his brother as his cat's paw, which is interesting in itself. His big brother, note you. Yes, exactly. Well, that brings me right to the next question, actually. We'll come back to what happens to to Danny Dots. But uh, the relationship between these two brothers is really quite interesting because I kept thinking of of Aspenak as the older brother, I guess in part because he stays home, but in part because he really seems to run the show. I mean, he's sort of bosses. I don't know if this is his revenge for Nanida taking off on the Silk Road all the time or whatever. What do do you make of him as a character and and their relationship? I think it's just his manner. He's the ultimate bureaucrat. Uh, Ultimate in the sense that he's very good at manipulating people. He really gets the politics of this. And the politics and the commerce are obviously completely interwoven. You can't be a success in this trade without knowing what's going on and where. So he has this vast network of spies and informants, not in the military Soviet sense, but informants. Because there aren't any newspapers and there's no way to find out what's going on if you don't have people on the ground. So he has people on the ground. He just revels in that kind of thing. And I just, when the book begins, he's quite, he loses weight at the end of the book. But as the book begins, he's quite this chubby, stolid sort of fellow. I just can't see him on the back of the camel for, for, for months at a time. It's just not his way. The division of labor broke down pretty well in the family, I think. And yes, he does have the more solemn, less Errol Flinny kind of way about him, much less actually. But it turns out that Aspanak Aspanak has been intriguing and maneuvering in ways that we aren't even aware of until the last few pages of the book. Right, that, yeah, we don't want to go into that too much, yeah. but Nani, he yeah, is. No, yeah. I won't, no, I won't. But Nani Dat was not aware, and he was like, oh my goodness, that's what's been going on all these years. He had no idea. He doesn't think in those lines. He does not like politics and intrigue and backdoor maneuvering. Yeah, um, I also get the impression, even quite early in the book, that either Aspenak really does resent Nanidad for being older, or Nanidad believes he does. It's, it's well, all- there's always been a lot of rivalry between them. There's, like I think there's about two years between them. Yeah, roughly two years between the two of them, and that's very close, I think, for brothers. There's always been a great deal of rivalry. Aspenak was always the troublemaker as a kid and kind of a little bit mean and malicious. Um, I remember Nani Dat talking, remembering back when he was 12 and Aspenak was 10 and he was thinking about a certain event that happened at that time and he remembered his brother as being not yet run to fat but still as mean-spirited as can be. He doesn't really like his brother. Family mm-hmm. loyalty is one thing, but he doesn't really like him. Yeah, um, and I can see why, actually. Um, it's yes. <laughs> well, I think Aspenak's just doing his job, and he's doing a darn good job. Yeah, he is. And, of course, it's, since the whole story is told from Nanny Dad's point of view, we only ever yeah. really see... He, he doesn't seem to be a terribly unreliable 
narrator, but everybody is to some extent unreliable and that we see things the way we see them. Exactly. Yes, if the story had been told from Aspenak's point of view, it would have been a very different story. Maybe just as interesting, but it would have been a very different story. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be interesting to see if he could have kept quite as much under wraps if he were telling the tale yeah, I himself. Wonder. I wonder. But, you know, this, this childish rivalry actually goes all the way through the book. They have a, an exchange of uh, letters at one point, and Aspenak is writing the letters in poetry, which is the, a way of coding the, the letters, um, expecting that Nanida, being a bright fellow, will be able to figure it out. And Nanida is bound and determined to write better poetry than his brother, as if that matters. With all the other terrible things that are going on right now, this should be the least of his worries. But he actually agonizes over producing this poem. Another poem comes back in reply, and he is so ticked off because, again, Aspenak has one-upped him. I mean, these are grown men, but they're still little boys in a way. Right. Yes, I can see that. So, um, so Nani Dad comes back to Samarkand. He's greeted as a hawk. He goes to um, a welcoming reception, basically, at the house. And he's barely had time to to change his clothes before (laughs) (laughs) someone tries to assassinate him. Yeah. Nice for homecoming. And this is the, the essential, what they call the inciting event. This is what sends Nanidot off on his journey. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the assassins and then we'll get into how he actually gets onto the journey, which brings up the third important character that we need to talk about. Well, it's an odd thing about those guys. I I made a point of never calling them assassins for the simple reason that there was a cult much later called the Assassins. It was a a political mm, group that pursued their politics by way of knifing people and killing them, which, you know, different strokes. So I never called them assassins. These were just murderers. And I do believe in his afterword, to the book. Dmitry Chen mentions that he consulted one particular book about the assassins. The book said that the rudiments of this murderous cult did actually exist in Nanidat's time. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't a fully formed cult by that point. However, there's a backstory to the assassins that I don't want to get into, right? To, to the murderers, the two murderers that tried to kill Nani that at the very beginning. There's a backstory to that that I think we'd better not get into right now. Right, I agree we needn't. Um, but Nani Dat is, is injured. Um, I think it's not too much of a spoiler to say that since he's got another 400 pages to go, he survives the initial assassination attempt. Or <laughs> even if we're not going to, you know, even though they're not assassins, the, the initial murder attempt. Um, which is done with these very clever weapons that are concealed inside a block of wood so people can... This particular group of murderers take service in a house and they hang around waiting for the perfect opportunity and when they do, they've got their block of wood handy and, you know, they pull out this stiletto-like instrument and attack. Yeah, they... The the block of wood splits in two and you kind of rotate it backwards and as you do, the blade is revealed. Very clever stuff. 
Um, it turns out that there have been other, usually pairs, of assassins working elsewhere, murdering the caliphs, uh, I think one of his sheriffs at least, a bunch of the caliph's people, officials, have been already cut down by these by these groups of murderers. Um, so, and they're very good at what they do. In this case, however, fortunately, because if they had succeeded, there probably wouldn't have been a book. They don't succeed. They get him, but they don't get him good. But they also then commit suicide, um, yeah. and then they and in the beginning they the people who are hearing them don't recognize the term that they're using as they as they in many cases they don't literally commit suicide, although sometimes they do. But they they once they've attacked, they don't try to escape. They allow themselves to be killed. Yes. And so this has just happened to Manidat, and he's in, wounded in his back. And the next morning, uh, Aspenat comes to visit him and tells him that uh, he has, how should I put this? Because Aspenak himself doesn't actually take responsibility for this. There is a young woman of Iranian descent named Zargisu. Yes. Who uh, has been living in the household. She's been... Um, Again, not exactly adopted, but her their father has taken responsibility for her mother and Zargisu herself. Right. And she is now, she has been, she has gone to Merv from Samarkand on business for the House of Maniach. And she has insisted on going to fight for the house and its interests. So in in the mind of Nanidat, uh, Aspenak has sent her but he, Asbenak keeps insisting that, no, she went under her own power. So tell us something about Zagisu. And then I think there was a passage from the book that you were going to read about her, which is particularly beautiful and captures a sense of her character as well as of the real strength of this book, which are the, the wonderful, rich descriptions of 8th century Central Asia and going heading west for towards Iran. Well, you've given her background already. Her her mother and she escaped from Iran. I, I have no idea why. And they were taken in by uh, Nanida's father, who says that he did that because Sargisu's mother is the only woman that he could ever consider to be fully above reproach. Well, you know, Mrs. Nanida's mother must have been thrilled to hear that. But anyway, so there's this woman and, and her child... So they are, the, the little girl, Zargisu, is, is raised almost like their sister, the sister of Nanidat and Aspanak. I think that's the entire family. I don't think that they have sisters of their own, real sisters. And she's a, she's a strong-minded, tough little girl. It seems like back in those days, women had a great deal of respect. They could pretty much do what they wanted. They were castes of women warriors even at that time, although Zargisu never became one of those. Nanidat's mother was, in fact, a member of one such caste of women warriors. And um, we learn that, through flashbacks, we learn that she becomes quite the powerful businesswoman in her own right from rug making. She makes beautiful Iranian rugs, she begins by making them herself, and then she hires women, and 
she has this little house that the uh, Maniach family has given to her, which she adds on to, and she makes a workshop in, in, in the house, and extremely successful. She had no reason to go swanning off to Merv, but she had her own reasons for doing that, apparently. So the passage that you were talking about, Nanidat is lying horribly wounded and, 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 and really sick in this ghastly makeshift hospital. And all he really has to do there is hurt and think. And he's, he escapes in, in his memories of much better times. And let me see if I can find this. Yes, here we go. He, he's talking about, he, start, he, he thinks about Zargisu a lot. There's, there's a certain amount of love there. Brotherly, a little bit more than brotherly, although they've never had any kind of uh, personal relationship, um, physical relationship. So he's thinking about her again, and uh, this is what he says. He's remembering a time when he went, he came back from China and went to visit her in her little home in Samarkand. Little home, there he goes. Zargisu met me then at the threshold of her little home. I had been told that she had enlarged the house, a gift to her from our family, with her own funds, which she now had in abundance. Because Zargisu had become a rug maker, employing a good 20 girls to weave those rugs in her courtyard. She had made the first knots as I watched many years before, and by this time, the orders for the products of her workshop, rugs of a dark blood red with white designs, the pride of Iran the beautiful, would keep her women busy for a year and a half ahead. She led me across the forward courtyard, which was that veritable workshop, and through a file of rooms to a rearward court. And there I stood, dumbstruck. Before me, between whitewashed walls, there ran into the distance long, perfectly straight walks of cypresses, young, not yet full-grown, and carefully trimmed, that divided the space into equal squares. And although I knew that the garden was not all that large, it was so made as to seem endless. There were two walks of white sand, also channeled straight as a lance, along which pure water, cold and sweet even to the eye, ran, with glassy ripples puckering its surface for the briefest of moments. Each of the squares between their cypress borders was a riot of color. Here were rose bushes, the plum-hued petals sprinkled with still drops of water. Here was a smooth field of flame-bright petunias, and to the right, uniform lines of yellow narcissi. Around that corner are jasmine bushes, but they aren't flowering now. Come again in spring, she said with a strange excitement in her voice. Then there will be white lalette. What would that be in? Oh, yes, tulips, of course. The walls will be wreathed with, in vines by autumn. And I forgot the little irises, greenish-blue, the color of deep water. They will please you. Because wherever you have been, there must be one place on earth where you can come and rest, knowing that they are glad of you there. No matter what has befallen you, no matter what the course of your life has been, so tell me now, be done with your silence. Is it well with you here? Is it well? She almost cried the words aloud and stood motionless on the path, inclining slightly toward me and spreading her hands to the side, palms upward. May I just sit a while in that arbor, I asked, to make the strange moment pass. 
there. That's lovely. Thank you. Oh, you're uh, welcome. Um, this novel has many levels. Um, what happens before Nanidat gets into the makeshift hospital uh, where he's still suffering from this wound that he's already um, experienced in the first chapter is that his brother finds a way to get him to go off in search of Zargisu. And so that's the small story. Is it uh, almost against his own wishes, uh, Nanidat ends up on this journey, and at a certain point he becomes committed to the journey. But there's a larger story as well, which was frankly largely unfamiliar to me about the, because the real background, which, what turns Nanidat eventually into a um, military commander, is that in this period of time the uh, Umayyad Caliphate, which has been the dominant um, power in Islam for the last, is it, certainly since, almost since the death of the Prophet, in, um, is now in its, on its last legs. And it is in the process of being replaced by the Abbasid Caliphate. And in addition to that, there is a rebellion that is going along with the, the declining power of the Umayyads and the increasing power of the Abbasids which is where the House of Abbas comes in from the title, the pet hawk of the House of Abbas uh, is Nanidat and his role in this this larger story. Um, it's one of the few books where I find that it was really much easier to read in print. I initially read it first as an e-book, um, but the print version has these lovely charts and maps and things that you can skim back to the front and look oh. at when you need it. <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness, yes. Did you have stuff like that when you were translating, or did you just have to kind of try to keep it straight? I've got to tell you, most of that stuff comes from this memory aid that I developed. Pretty quickly, I realized that I was choosing certain ways of spelling things because there are various ways of transliterating Arabic names and even place names. So I realized I had to keep this straight. It wouldn't do to have a spelling A on page 20 and spelling B on page 25, because it was confusing enough to begin with without that. So I developed this um, list of proper names, place names and personal names, and um, a lot of the foreign Arabic mostly, some Sogdian words that show up a lot in the text and that the author really wanted to keep for color. And um, I supplemented this list as I went along and I sent it also to the author to get his feedback on it which was very useful but then when the publisher began talking about making a, a list of characters and developing a map I realized I could just cannibalize my memory jogger and uh, supply it to the publisher for for that information the um the family tree I actually drew. It looked like a five-year-old had done it on, in Word, which basically was a person with five-year-old capacities doing it in Word. And the publisher made a lovely job of it. But uh, that was all because I needed to keep my mind straight as I was working on this thing. 
Well, I'm very impressed that you tried it in Word. Drawing, drawing anything in Word makes me completely nuts. I do it in InDesign because I have it for my work, and it's fine in InDesign, but doing it in Word just makes me completely crazy. I just did. I, I, I looked for family trees, but they all had, like, flowers and pretty things all over them, so that wouldn't work. I, I, I couldn't find a template. So I ended up, you know, drawing this stuff. It was terrible. It was really awful, but... The publisher was very, very nice about it, and uh, we had a family tree in the end, which, again... It's very helpful, very helpful, yes, it is, it's wonderful. There's also, by the way, there's also a glossary of weird words. One of the early readers had said, oh, I'm having an awful lot of difficulty keeping all these different words apart, what's a chakir, what's a kalam? Uh, I don't blame you, brother, I mean, I've been working on this for nine years, for nine months, it felt like nine years sometimes, nine months. And I understand that, so the um, publisher agreed to put a little glossary, but it was too late to put it in the book. The book had already been published, so it went on the site, and that, I think, is also really quite helpful. Also cannibalized from my memory jogger. Well, that's great. (laughs) I hope they're properly appreciative. I love being able to do that. I have never had a book, a novel, with, with... so much wonderful collateral material. The last story I did was really complicated. It was kind of a Middle Earth kind of fantasy. And the Russian book had a map. And all I wanted was to have the same map in the English book. And I begged the author and nothing ever happened. And it's a shame because the book was poor as a result. Mm-hmm. This couldn't have been any richer, I don't think. I'm thrilled with the way it was treated. It, the production is really nice. Yeah, the design of the book and everything is really quite lovely. I'm very, very impressed. Um, what do you think the author would like readers to take away from this, the pet, house of, ha, pet hawk of the House of the Boss? What do, what do you think is the central message of the story? I'd never thought of that. I think one thing he's rather hot on is Having to see, and this is very important, I think, to an American audience, maybe more than to a Russian audience, having to see how things that happened a really long time ago affect us to this day. I mean, in the book, we see the first ideas of the founding of the city that was later to become Baghdad. It, 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 there's a connection between the world of the book and what's going on in the world to this very day. I think that might be, it sounds kind of abstract, but I think that might be one of the main things. I can't read his mind, but I think that might be one of the main things he wants us to take away from this. That's a good point, actually. I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking of that. You know, I read this first last year, and so I reviewed it for our interview, and as I was reviewing it, I, I came across that passage. It's near the very end of the book where uh, Manny Dot is talking uh, to someone and he, they mention specifically that the, the, uh, the other guy wants to call it some, the, the new town something quite complicated like Madinat as salam yeah. or something. And Manny Dot looks at it and he says, well, that's fine, but you know, it needs another name if people are going to to talk about it all over the world. And, and the guy says, no, it's Madinat As-Salam. And, and Nanida points to this little village spot, a spot on the horizon. And he says, so what's that place called? And, um, and she's, uh, the other guy says, oh, it's Baghdad. But, you know, the name of the city will be Madinat As-Salam. 
and then Nanny Dad says, <laughs> says, no, everybody's going to call it Baghdad. I'm, I'm extrapolating. That's not the exact phrasing. It's done much better in the book. Very much, very much like that. Yeah. The, the, the guy who built it, he was soon to become prominent in the new caliphate. I won't tell you how, well, I won't say how prominent, but he um, wanted to call it Madinat As-Salam means the city of peace. He'd been very taken by what he had learned about Chang'an, which is where Nanidat did a lot of his uh, trading in China, now known as the city of Shan. And uh, Chang'an means perpetual or constant peace. And he actually questioned Nanidat at one point about this, about the city and what it's like. And I don't know if he already had the idea of calling his own city the city of peace beforehand but certainly he did afterward and he's very very adamant that no little crappy little village down there that's not worth even naming that is not going to give the name to his city and, and of course <laughs> of course it did and then the thing is that now you know you've got this new caliphate that's trying to set itself up right near Baghdad and would love to take Baghdad and so you're kind of going you know, yes. history is stranger than we can imagine. <laughs> exactly. And in a way, you, you, also in the book, you see the very beginnings. Muhammad hasn't been dead, but Muhammad the prophet has not been dead for very long when the book begins. And you see already the split in the, in the Islamic world. Are you going to go with a relative or a descendant of Muhammad, or are you going to go with the best guy for the job? It's kind of like, hereditary monarchy versus republic and that turns into two very serious very separate groups that right now are tearing the islamic world apart the sunni and the shiite it all began back then right yes and you do see that right absolutely yeah yeah so one of the interesting elements of this translation project is that it came to life through a kickstarter campaign um What are the prospects that we're going to see books two and three in English? Oh, your lips to God's ear. I I don't know. It's, I mean, this is a commercial proposition in the end of it. I mean, I'm I'm in love. One shouldn't even talk to me about this because I'm I'm in love with this this trilogy. However, the, the publisher does have financial considerations and they're just, he just he needs to find the funding from somewhere. Um, I I don't know what his intentions are on that score. Novels these days, I believe, are not really much of a money-making proposition. I mean, nobody goes into writing or publishing novels to get rich, although some people do. Lucky them. But uh, it, it really hinges on the financials. I want to follow this man's story. Through the next two books, I want to go to Constantinople with him, and I want to go to China with him, and I really hope I get that chance. I hope you do too. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Liv Bliss, the translator of Dimitri Chen's The Pet Hawk of the House of Abbas. You can find out more about the Silk Road Trilogy at www.russianlife.com. 
slash books slash fiction slash silk hyphen road hyphen trilogy. Like us on Facebook, search for new books in historical fiction, and follow us on Twitter at capital N-E-W, capital B-O-O-K-S, capital H-I-S-T, capital F-I-C. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. At blog.cplesley.com, I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. If you'd like to know more about my novels, you can find that information under the Books tab. The New Books Network is run by volunteers. If you enjoyed the interview you've just heard, please consider donating to our network. It can be as simple as going to newbooksinhistoricalfiction.com, that's one word, and clicking on one of the press logos displayed under the search box.